Sports Business Strategy Podcast. I'm Will Item. I'm Armand Alawalia. And I'm Brittany Ramos. And that smooth sound of the beach crashing into this podcast. That would be Brittany Ramos speaking live from the Rocket Mortgage Draft House. I'm sadly not there right now. <laughs> Today is media day, so we're, okay. not, we're not on site. But um, yeah, very exciting times around here. House looks glamorous in the background. Nevertheless, I thought you were in Malibu at the Draft House. We have a great guest coming up, Julia Malini from Real Madrid, but the entire intro of this podcast is solely dedicated to what I feel is one of my favorite uh, activations in quite some time is the Draft House from our very own LA Rams and Brittany Ramos. So this whole intro is dedicated to you, Brittany. Yeah, I'm very honored, you guys. It was so hard to keep such thing a secret from my favorite friends. That's right. We did not know about it, but now... Everyone knows about it, and we're going to ask you to expand on this. So for those who have not seen any of the social media highlights or the recently released video of Rebel Wilson roaming around the draft house with Sean McVay and all the other Rams players, Brittany, talk us through what this draft house is, how it got conceived. Yeah, so just to backtrack a little bit, when we were having conversations with Rocket Mortgage, it's really exciting to have a partner who approaches you with wanting to do something epic. Verbatim, what they had mentioned to us in aligning with a lot of their different pillars as a brand, they really pride themselves on these big marquee moments, whether it's the Super Bowl squares, things they did with the Kentucky Derby and so forth, leveraging these big marquee moments in sports to drive their brand and recognition along with lead generation, et cetera. One of the biggest things was tying into you know, who they were as a brand and, and what they wanted to be represented as and being this strong, bold, innovative brand. So it was really exciting, first off, to hear those words, because as somebody in this role, you guys can appreciate the opportunity for a partner to really allow you the the freedom to go big. You know, we're so limited at times of not every partner is ex as exciting or wants exciting deliverables, um, unfortunately. So when you do get the opportunity to really widen your creativity and challenge yourself from an innovation standpoint, it's extremely exciting. And so when Rocket Mortgage was having this conversation with us, what opportunity can we leverage that's really like a marquee moment that's going to really drive an opportunity for them to have this epic type of activation. So coming off of last year and understanding that there is an opportunity for us to draft virtually and it to be able to be executed, uh, we thought through, okay, maybe there's a way for us to actually do this again, but why don't we make it a little bit more LA. A lot of different variables came into play of how can we, you know, we kind of already thought through on the back end this concept of could we draft virtually again? How could we make it in a unique way? And then of course with Rocket Mortgage, a house and the house concept, a lot of brand alignment. So, you know, for us, it was like, wow, why don't we create this rocket mortgage draft house. And when I approached 
the team with it, it was how can we not just make it the Rocket Mortgage Draft House where we're drafting virtually, but how do we also make take it to another level? And how do we make it this influencer house, content house, have our media on site, integrate influencers, integrate our players um, into the experience? Obviously, not just with the draft actually happening, it will be very much the draft happening, but just with an awesome backdrop. But then how do we continue to expand it throughout the month to create unique content to have opportunities for influencers, for hosting, very similar to when you go to a Super Bowl, you have all these different areas that you you walk in and, and there's different activations and so forth. So how do we not just make this a, a one-stop shop for just the draft portion, but then how can we take it to that next level, continue to activate the house, make it the place to go It's been a a labor of love. It's a lot of planning, bringing this to life, which includes so many people within the organization. It's really been super exciting to see us all come together to to make this a reality. And when I brought it to the table, I thought I was going to get laughed at or you're crazy, but it's exciting to hear. And it was exciting to see that we decided to take it on. And then when presenting it to Rocket Mortgage, they were super excited about it. And now it lives for real as the Rocket Mortgage draft house. And it's been a fun ride. And obviously, you guys saw the Rebel piece, which was a lot of fun too. Uh, we're, we're trying to make draft more than just a, a moment. You know, We're trying to make it an experience. So this event this experience, this house does not come together on a weekend. This takes time. This takes planning. In COVID, there are health requirements. All those other things are are factors into that. Yeah. And I think for us too, strategically, we thought about Rocket Mortgage as a partner as well, who happens to be a league partner. So we knew that we could have a really big, expansive moment with them and getting a lot of as you know, as a league partner, they get a different set of rights for how things, you know, content and media can be reached and leveraged. So they were also the perfect partner to make this even bigger and on a bigger stage and platform. So we've been really excited to see how this is all coming to life and coming together. But logistically, yes. So it's been crazy, to be honest, the way we would love to truly activate the house and truly bring it to life isn't going to be as big as we would like to do it next year because we're limited just from a capacity perspective. Safety is first and foremost. So we want to make sure that that is all in place. So we don't get to do some of the bigger activations around the house that we would like to be able to deliver. But, you know, there was a lot going into this from working with the league on approvals to picking the correct house that we really wanted that wanted to bring this to life to getting buy-in from our football operations team from our IT team which I'm so sorry Jeff if you're listening I know that you're working very hard to get us as much Wi-Fi as possible but um, you know there's and a lot of cross collaboration right it's not just the partnerships team it's marketing it's media it's um, all of our demand gen, it's so many people that are involved in bringing this to life and making this happen that 
it really takes a village and it's taken months and months and months of planning, which is the labor of love aspect that I speak of. But, you know, it goes from the ideation to obviously the the pitch and so forth, but it took a lot of buy-in internally, as we talk about all the time on the show, is that it's not just the external (laughs) approvals, it's internal that is that is definitely a lot of the times the the more the more challenging. So here we were lucky that people thought this was a exciting enough concept that even though it's taken a lot of work and a lot of time that they're willing to really buy into their roles within making this come to life. I think it's great. I think it's an entirely new asset. That is one of the things a lot of these strategy departments are being asked to do across the U.S. is, all right, we've got signage, we've got social media assets. What else can be a revenue generator? What else can we do to increase visibility for our brands? And the draft has been going on for decades, and not once have I seen an actual sponsorship integration into the draft as good as this one. And it might have had to do with the pressure of the pandemic last year with Cliff Kingsbury going <laughs> viral with his draft room, a couple of the other coaches as well too. Bill Belichick even had a little bit of a highlight of where he was drafting from. I think this is just a perfect opportunity of in a pressure-filled situation to turn a negative into a positive. And I just think it's great. And I'm excited to see how it will play out through the rest of the month. Because all of a sudden now the draft is a big sponsorable asset. And even if things go back to normal next year, I will not be surprised if more NFL teams turn the draft war room into a sponsorable asset. So I think it's great. Yeah. And I think, thank you. And I think that I talked about it on our first episode that I was on is that how can we continue to think through these marquee moments and building platforms around them in, in new and innovative ways, the draft kickoff, you know, different, we have different tent pole moments throughout the year, especially on a football perspective, but how do we take, how do we take those and make them more? We don't have to reinvent the wheel. They're there, they exist, but how do we build on them and create something more than just kind of what we've seen in the past, but build them into real revenue generating opportunities. And so what I challenge myself with and my team and just looking at just the industry in general is how can we continue to push the, you know, push it forward with new innovative ideas on taking these, these marquee moments and making them into, you know, something bigger and, and hopefully, you know, continuing to push ourselves creatively. I know that I get inspired by all of you guys and things that I see and just continuing to honestly make our jobs a lot more fun because things like this are way more fun to do, even though they're tiresome from a labor of love perspective, they're way more fun to do and be a part of than some of the traditional asks we get. We did talk a couple of weeks ago during our mental health check-in of the pandemic has taken away some of the fun of our job. So this one certainly seemed fun. And you know what also is fun? Talking about Real Madrid football. And luckily, we have someone from Real Madrid as our guest during this week's podcast. Armand, who do we have coming up? 
Yeah, we've got Julian Molini had an opportunity to talk through uh, what they're doing over there at Real Madrid and the kind of creation of a strategy department at a very old entity in the sense that Real Madrid has been around for many, many years and itself as a club has continued to evolve from what it was to what is, is becoming now as a global force. Obviously today, when we're recording this, they played their first leg of their semifinal Champions League uh, where they faced Chelsea, where an American, Christian Pulisic, I think I'm getting that pronunciation right. I'm not 100% entirely sure. I'm not going to question it. Uh, great interview. We just want to preface it that when we did interview Julian, this was all prior to the European Serpa League. So none of that was touched upon. Again, really focusing in on the strategy of his job and how he's approaching it there at Real Madrid. And with that, let's head into our interview with Julian Molini. We are joined today by a very across-the-pond guest, another one, if you've cut our series here, which seems to be International Month, Julian Malini, who is the Global Head of Strategic Insights and Analytics, and I believe Business Intelligence is somewhere in there, at Real Madrid. Julian, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be with you today. That title is a mouthful, and I know we were talking a little bit before we came on here about how your job and your role has really evolved quite a lot at Real Madrid. But before we jump into that, let's give a quick background to how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can tell by my accent, I'm, I'm, I wasn't born in Madrid, uh, born and raised in Denver, Colorado, uh, and then moved to Europe with my wife uh, 10 years ago because it was always our dream to live in London. So spent uh, a few years being an investment banker, a year fundraising for some charities in the UK, and then ended up with the NFL helping to create their international insights and strategy group. I always joke that I'm probably the only person in the world who moved out of Denver to end up getting a job with the NFL from London. Uh, and then two years ago, I was recruited by Real Madrid to help them set up a partnership strategy group. And then later, as part of their transformation, to work with the Chief Transformation Office to create a new department that was strategy insights and business intelligence, essentially using data, turning in that into actionable insights, driving strategy and making actionable outcomes for the business. So yeah, three different countries, three different experiences, uh, and wouldn't have changed anything. Well, I was going to say, I don't think you could on an, an, anything better of a promo for our podcast, given the exact example of what you've done and what you're currently doing at Real Madrid. So, um, you know, I know you pr prior to your time at, at Real Madrid, and you were brought in, obviously, to impact the organization from a strategic and kind of data transformation. So can you maybe kind of give us an understanding of where you were before and where you are right now and how the strategy has changed? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, my pathway into sports was a little bit different because I didn't get into sports. I, I wasn't a, a, a sports person right off the bat. I was an investment banker. And essentially in investment banking, you're trying to serve the needs by solving problems. You're trying to find gaps in the market and solve problems. And as we see the evolution of the sports industry, professional sports leagues, the clubs, it's the same thing. How do we make our business better? How do we run more intelligently? How do we move from a situation where it's just a gut feel to actually backing this up with something that's a little bit more robust? So, you know, uh, my, my skills were transferable. And, you know, as I, I joined the NFL, I think the challenges were something completely different than when they were in Real Madrid. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, is how do you change an organization that's used to operating in one way and move it to a new way of working? while still honoring 
the good things that have happened. These are successful organizations. So how do you use the legacy that has been built and leverage that for, for future success? It's interesting that you say that of a team that is so successful because though I am not the strongest EPL or La Liga fan, when I think of international soccer, it's probably Man City, uh, Man United, and Real Madrid is the three teams that I can name off the top of my head. And so I understand how you know, a lot of time, whether it be from a partnership standpoint or when it comes to selling tickets, it would be very easy just to lean on the idea of, well, we're Real Madrid. We don't need to worry about the data. We already have such great name recognition and brand identity that we can do things as we've always done. So what were those first steps when joining uh, the team, the organization, when joining the club to shift towards a, yes, our brand recognition is really high, but we can take this to an even higher level by incorporating data. What were those first 90 days like for you? And how has it progressed since? Yeah, and I, I think the first thing was to learn how to say, hola, como estas? But uh, once, once you got the Spanish out of the way, uh, you know, and, and you hit the nail on the head, what I always like to talk about is the future. We're not here to audit the past. We're not here to say what was bad, what was good. We're not making a judgment. What we're trying to do is say, there's an opportunity here. You have achieved so much success, but think about the future. Think about the potential that there is to recognize and how do we achieve that? And that's essentially what our role is. We are here as an advisor to give you recommendations to help you drive that business forward to achieve wherever you want to go. Uh, and I, I think that's particularly relevant in sport now as so much of it is shifting. And, and, you know, we've talked about this over the last few years, the shift into more of an entertainment and a lifestyle brand. It's beyond just 90 minutes on the pitch. It's beyond just a football game being played somewhere. It is now how do we become relevant in people's lives 365 days a year when there's more competition for the share of mind, wallet, and time. And so our conversation with our stakeholders within Real Madrid is very much that. We're here to help you unlock opportunity. And so I think the first thing I learned when I moved into this field, especially into sports, was that I would never say that there's a problem. I never say that there was a challenge. Every problem we rephrased as an opportunity. And I think if you would come with it with that sentiment, it really helps to, to sell in the message. And again, I think strategy sometimes is misunderstood. It's misunderstood as we're going to come and tell you what you're doing wrong, as opposed to we're going to be your number one advocate and we're actually going to make your life easier because you don't have to guess anymore. We're going to help you go in the direction you need to go. I really like the way that you rephrased the problem into an opportunity. That's a very unique kind of perspective. I'm, I'm, I might have to start taking that. So are you guys trying to think of your department as consultants that are basically there to help rather than to state the problem and become as a negative you have to change has, has that been something that you've had to overcome knowing that a traditionally old established entity like real madrid probably has some things that they've been holding on to for a long time right and i but I, I think that's the fundamental time anytime you're doing change or anytime you're doing something new is how do you position this in a way that's beneficial for the person that you're trying to serve and how do you create it as a two-way dialogue I think too much strategy or a function like this is either fulfilling requests that somebody mandates to them, and then they just get the answer that they were expected, or they don't want to deal with you because they don't really understand it and they fear it. So how do you create a positive two-way relationship where it's actually a relationship where you're adding value to them and you're seen as a trusted advisor that in fact, they, they don't want to do business without you being there. You have to become essential to them 
uh, and in this case, your internal. So yes, very much as if you would go hire an external consultancy to advise you on these things. We are internal to your club and we're here to serve you and you first and foremost and only. Uh, and I think it's any time you, you know, you give feedback to people, it's about how do you coach and how do you develop and how do you teach it? How do you do that in a way that is bringing positive energy to it? If I walked into your house, Armand, and said, I don't like the way that your pictures are framed on the wall behind you, you're not going to listen to me. If you say, I think there's a way that we can make your room really look better um, on this Zoom call, then all of a sudden, maybe you're listening to me. So it's all about the way that you phrase things and, and the way you, uh, you go about working with people. And I think fundamentally, it's also a trust in what you do, that you believe that you can add value to other people. And you have to feel confident in an environment where you're going to blend data and the hard numbers with art. There's still going to be gut feelings. There's still going to be decisions made. There's still going to be people involved in this. So how do you blend that art and the science? And if you get that down and feel comfortable in the environment, then you'll be really successful in this. I'm going to put a pin on the idea of helping other departments and proving that you are a good resource for them to help build their trust. We're going to come back to that uh, for a real case example, but let's, let's backtrack then just to kind of lay the ground floor of where your department is now, maybe where it first started. What does your team look like? For instance, at the Thunder, when we say strategy right now, it is more partnership focused. So we are focused a lot on the data on how it can move forward with corporate partnerships. We have a business intelligence team that has been focused a lot on ticket sales in the past handful of years. Where did you start building out your team? Where are most of your resources and efforts being put into right now? So both in the NFL and here at Real Madrid, my team's role is, is club-wide. So focused on every element that our business does and helping to maximize that. Um, our department, like I said, was was created by me when I joined and so didn't exist. Then we hit COVID. So that's a very difficult time to build out teams. And we had a budget freeze and a hiring freeze. And so uh, we've, we've navigated as best we can. Essentially, to answer your question, what we're trying to do or, or my vision of it is that uh, similar to a consultancy firm or an investment bank where you have a relationship manager that's sort of your strategic business partner. So it works really closely with the business units and might have specific expertise, with, whether it be sponsorship or ticketing or product or brand. And they work with those business units to understand what are those key objectives? What are those business units trying to, to achieve? And then they come back and work with our technical team. So underneath me is a data science lab, uh, analytics and product analytics, and then our consumer insights team. So ultimately, they work with those different functions to get the data, the insights, and the actionable uh, recommendations that they need to take back to those business units. So we're taking the hardcore data functions, we're adding a layer of value, which is what I call that actionable insights piece, which ultimately is the commodity that we provide. And then we're giving that layer of strategic recommendation that is spoken in the business unit's language, right? So if you're looking at a piece of data, you might talk to your brand team about it differently because it's something we have to uh, work on or something we need to think about cognizantly. When you're preparing it for sponsorship, you might flip that in an opposite direction and use that as a sales pitch, right? So what you're doing is basically taking the same raw materials and just, again, packaging it differently for however you're using it. 
And also, if you're doing this very efficiently, you can reuse the same amount of data. You can build scale off of that without having to overburden with taking on too many tools or, or headcount or however it might be. When you came to Real Madrid, you spent a lot of time in the partnerships department, right? And traditionally, that's where Will, myself, and then Brittany as well spend a lot of our time. Where do you spend most of your time or your department's time right now? And has that shifted? Or is there a department that you know, you're spending a lot of time in right now trying to develop processes and improve those skills and enhance those? With the NFL, we spent, I would say, equal amount of time between our fan marketing, our events, and what I would say kind of fan experience area, and then our chief commercial revenue functions, uh, merchandising, licensing, and then traditional partnership. Because NFL International's two key objectives were fan growth and then monetization. So ultimately, that's where we were spending our time very split that way. Uh, Real Madrid, it's similar and it's evolving more and more as the business looks to evolve more and more. Uh, you know, European football is dominated by traditional sponsorship. It's dominated by ticket and live, you know, the live game experience. And now, again, as it starts to modernize and professionalize and think about things differently, it's thinking about how do we become a brand? How do we become a media and content factory? How do we become a hub? And an essential brand for our for our um, for our fans and potential fans. So I would say in that same path that the club moves is where where our attention moves. And I think that's the real key about having a great strategy function is you must be agile and you must be able to take the learnings and you must be able to bring them to other parts of the club because ultimately at the end of the day what we're trying to do is create integrated strategies and our group is probably at the forefront of breaking down those silos. Right? If you're doing this right. It's club-wide strategy. It's not strategy for partnership. It's not strategy for marketing because ultimately the sponsorship is activating through your marketing. So inherently that should be one strategy. Ticketing has to tie in with the overall consumer experience. So again, it's you've got to spend time where the business is needing to go and where those low-hanging priority areas are. And as a team, you have to be agile and dynamic and willing to put on different hats constantly throughout the day. That's also what makes it so exciting. You don't just get into one zone or one area. One thing I caught from that is when you're talking about a club's focus, um, let's compare an MLS team to Real Madrid, where a lot of the revenue from even a Portland Timbers, a successful MLS team in here, a lot of their focus is on the local market, ticket sales. That's where a lot of their revenue comes just because TV revenue hasn't gotten up there yet. Mm -hmm. It feels like it might be opposite with Real Madrid. You can only fit so many thousand people into your stadium for every game. But if I'm looking at your, your Instagram following, the Thunder, I think, are top 10 in the NBA with about 4 million or so Instagram followers. Real Madrid, as of this recording, are sitting at just shy of 100 million followers, 96 million. So I'm just wondering about how that so many potential fans that you need to learn about. Are you putting a lot of your efforts, making sure that you've got everything local down as far as who your fans are, or are all of your resources catering to learning more about all of your fans in India or in Brazil? How do you focus all of your time of understanding the fans? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I think that's exactly why we were brought here, right? Is to shift away from just the experience of 80,000 people in the Bernabeu Stadium in a 90 minute match. And how do we think about our fan base as truly being global? And how do we think of ourselves as a truly global brand? And that is challenging. And, and one of the things of working for the NFL internationally 
and for Real Madrid, which is a global brand, is you have to be able to then try to figure out and prioritize what are your key markets and what are your key areas of opportunity because ultimately you want to know everything about everything, but you can't. Uh, budget restrictions, personnel restrictions, there's a lot of limitations. So how do you choose? And, and that's, again, why strategy becomes even that much more essential, both in terms of what the business is doing, but quite frankly, in terms of how we prioritize our workload okay, we can't go do deep dive work in every country in the world. So again, where are we looking to, to find this? And that's exciting. It's extremely challenging. It adds a lot of layer of complexity to what it is that we're trying to do. But ultimately, I think it's also really rewarding because you are trying to work on strategies that have enough global resonance that they can be transferred across the globe, obviously. But then how do you make them so that they can be specific into certain territories or in certain markets when that's necessary? Uh, while football, football is a good example of this, right? Because football, soccer is the world's dominant sport. But then if you're looking to expand into India or the U.S. where soccer isn't the dominant indigenous sport, you have to think about it in a different way than if we're thinking about expanding to Germany or Italy. Uh, and so... That component is is really key, and then activating partners globally and worldwide, regional partners, global partners as well. And then to just answer your question, Will, Real Madrid is fortunate in that its sponsorship business carries so much weight of the revenue along with TV, but obviously the media deals get negotiated by La Liga, so it's a little bit different. But we aren't just as dependent as on that ticket revenue coming through the gates every match as some of our competitors are and certainly other sports clubs are throughout the world. Yeah, I think that's interesting in that as the NFL, and as I'm sure you're familiar with this, Julian, you know, 95% of the fans of the Kansas City Chiefs will never come to GHA Field at Arrowhead Stadium, right? They'll, they'll, they'll never come here. And so how do you guys start to think about that when engaging and using all the data that you have across the entire world, right? A fan in Brazil may be a different value to you than a fan in China or a fan in the UK? How do you guys start to model out potentially some customer lifetime value or when you're putting resources in, how are you guys trying to ingest and be effective with all of these types of data that you've got across all these different countries, which include different uh, you know, governing rules about how to manage that data? How do you start to think about that? Or are you trying to regionalize your efforts as best as you can? Well, I think it first goes to the question that I has kept me awake at night over the last seven, eight years is how do you even define a fan? What is a fan? And so the first thing I did when I went to the NFL was say, step back a second and say, we keep talking about fans, but how are we even defining that, that audience? Because that's the million dollar question. And I think something that's really interesting about working in sports is that definition of fandom is very fluid, can be defined in a million different ways. Uh, and that makes our job really exciting. It also, again, makes it very challenging. Uh, you know, if you work for Coca-Cola, it's easy to understand who drinks Coke, who will never drink a soda, and who drinks Pepsi. And you've got your addressable market, and you've got your strategies, and you've got your segmentation, broadly speaking. In sports, first and foremost, how are we defining what a Real Madrid fan is? How are we defining what an NFL international is? And how then do we create relevant fan journeys for them that create fanning engagement, and then monetization. So the first thing we did at NFL, first thing I did at Real Madrid was create a comprehensive attitudinal and behavioral segmentation. 
So why are people fans? What are the need states we need to trigger? And then in understanding those need states, how do we build relevant activation and marketing strategies to target them? And then how do we create relevant fan funnels and journeys for them? So what does our product strategy look like? What is our merchandising strategy? Like you said, Arma, a fan in Brazil might look completely different than the Bernabeu stadium goer, but might look entirely like somebody who's in Valencia who also isn't going to the stadium. Because what you're trying to do is understand why are they a part of it? Is it for community? Is it for self-mastery of the game? Is it for the stats? Is it for a way to connect your family? And in doing that, you understand, okay, while there's a global population, there are similarities running and it helps us to prioritize where we where we activate, how we activate, and how we think about our fans. But first and foremost is defining fans. And then from there, like you said, how do we augment that data and continue to grow uh, knowledge of that of that fan base? I have a quick follow-up if that's Unless you got something on your mind, go ahead, Will. No, mine was more going to be the joke. Of, it sounds like, so you're not just doing watch, attend, listen, or stream as defining <laughs> a fan. So you're above what Scarborough uh, gives us. So great. Well, and, and honestly, all kidding aside, you know, when I started at the NFL, it was interest, you know, we were defining fans globally about interest in, in American football, right? And then at Real Madrid, we were using the definition of very interested or interested, but you can be interested in something and that does not imply emotional engagement. That doesn't actually even imply that you like it. I mean, I'm somewhat in, in, interested in cryptocurrency. That doesn't mean I have a crypto account or even know what the heck it is, right? But on that scale, I would be a fan of cryptocurrency. And so that's the same thing here. You could be very interested in Barcelona because they are a rival. And so ultimately, you have to change that definition and you do have to go beyond it. And, and I really think for sport, you have to look at that. You know, what is drawing you to it? And then you could create the funnel that we always talk about, which is awareness, emotional engagement, which leads to prioritization, which leads to monetization. And you change the relationship. You change it from being transactional to being relationship-based. It sounds like you guys have created almost a multitude of different fan segmentation and fan profiling that allows you to target and speak to people in very specific ways. One of the things that I've tried to think about is how to create those one-to-one relationships, i.e., I think about it as watching a television show, right? If I, if I want to watch the football, I want all the stats, right? And in this visual world I've got, you know, there's going to be a bar that gives me all the PFF stats or the likelihood of statistical analysis of this happening or whatever. How close are you guys to potentially creating one-to-one marketing? Or are you guys very tailoring your approach to these specific fan journeys and fan profiles? Well, that's the ultimate goal. And then ultimately, you're taking these broad fan segmentations on the general football fan or the general Real Madrid fan, and then using first-party data, zero-party data, or, or however else you can augment your data to then start to create that marketing segmentation and that activation that's specifically tailored. So your DXP, your CDP, and that's ultimately what we're trying to get to. You know, that's the brilliance of companies like Amazon or, or Netflix. Is, is ultimately what we're trying to do is get to that level so that it does become that one-to-one personal relationship. We know that you like Sergio Ramos. So when you come to the homepage, you're automatically see, you know, Sergio Ramos is greeting you and you've gone and you can buy his kit right off the bat. Or we know you're interested in women's football. Here's the power. So ultimately that is absolutely 100% uh, the goal. And 
I think it's a situation where the better relationship you start, the more fan friendly you are, the easier it is to get people to want to give you the data that allows you to do that. That's, that's the trick of all of these Amazons, Netflix. Did you like this? Great. Now we are giving them data that's helping them to curate it better for us. And that feedback loop is actually helping them to grow their knowledge of us. And we are voluntarily providing it to them. Uh, and that's what I suggested that earlier when I was saying about changing it from transactional to being relationship and to being essential in their life. I give Apple all of my information because it actually really helps me. So that's a trade-off I'm willing to give. And as a result, Amazon's able to better serve me and also make more money out. Uh, and ultimately, that's the model we would like to be able to get to with always keeping fan experience first and foremost. And I think that's something that North American clubs do really well. Fans first. Take it from a fan first approach, not a club first approach or a league first approach or an apartment first approach. Well, we've talked about a lot of the, the groundwork, the seeds that you've planted uh, to put Real Madrid more future forward looking. And I said we were going to put a pin on it. So now I'm going to go back to that point. Is asking you to do, let's say, a case study for your own department of proving its effectiveness. So a little opportunity to do a bit of a, a humble brag. What have you seen in the, in the last 18 months of something that your department has done that has helped the business grow that might not have been in place before you came on board? Where have you seen strategy be acknowledged from other departments of, oh, thank God this department is here? Very much, I would say it's still a work in progress, of course. Um, I, I would say the fact that there is this department that was created uh, was, a, was a huge case study of success. Uh, they put investment into it. They believed in it. Um, it is a brand new department in a 120-year-old club that has never existed. Uh, so that's one big example of that. And two, I think we just touched on it. The understanding that fans aren't just the 80,000 people in the state. And as basic as that sounds, that's, that's transformational to the business because all of a sudden it shifts the way we need to think about how we are operating and who we're serving. So when I walk around the building and people say, yes, but what about all of the fans in India? Or what about this segment? I understand that people are starting to understand that we have to take this from a fan first approach as opposed to a, we just feel good about what we're doing, so we're gonna keep doing it. Well, we know that strategy departments can't do everything on their own. Resources can sometimes be limited even when they're boosted up. And so we do rely sometimes on third-party vendors or other tools. Uh, we'll preface this again by saying the Source Business Strategy Podcast is not sponsored by any third-party vendors. So this is not needing to be a plug for anybody. Uh, is there any tool uh, that you've used in the last 12, 18 months that's just helped out in general, whether it is a social media listening tool or it's a, a fan marketing survey platform, anything that's helped you out? Well, you have a huge opportunity to get some dollars in, Will, because that's a sponsor of a lot of <laughs> We're working on it. Once we get three in a row, we know exactly who we're going for. But no, we are trying to keep this pure. It's not about the money. This is pure. This is pure. Right. It, it, it's, a good, it's a good question, and I've worked with a lot of great, um, great people over the, over the years. Uh, to be honest with you, especially wearing my, my Consumer Insights hat, we've worked with a lot of great market research and Consumer Insights companies. And ultimately, my belief is that it's the people who are at those companies more than it is the, the tech that, that uh, underlies most of it. Especially if you have a smaller team or creating a newer team, you really have to have the support of, of, of whoever. So we, we constantly work with, with third parties because we can't possibly do all of this in-house. 
And so you're really reliant on them to come in with a partnership model, go to the extra level to be able to support you, to add value when you have to ask a thousand questions because you've got to cut it a million different ways and really make sure that you're getting what you need to serve the various different stakeholders. So to me, I always, I always spend a lot of time when I'm RFPing actually getting to know the teams behind it uh, and, and understanding what they're going to add the value on top of, of a tech tool or, or a platform. It's almost like you're looking for a thought partner rather than a vendor in that sense, and that you're looking for the kind of this, the, the ability to support and, and think with you through the problems that you're trying to accomplish. 100%. I mean, uh, I used to call them partners and it kind of became confusing because they thought I was talking about sponsors, but, but that's exactly the attitude that, that we have. And, and honestly, I think to get the best out of people who are trying to work in strategy with you, you have to be transparent and it has to be able to be a confident collaborative process. Uh, so much of it is that if, if you're not willing to collaborate or if you have silos or you hide the data, you're not going to get to where you need to get to to begin with. All right. In wrapping it up here, the last question that we usually ask is for our guests to provide us either with a piece of advice that they've received in their career or uh, a book that they've read that they really thought was uh, that, that impacted the way that they think or, or really enjoyed. First book, I'll, I'll give two book recommendations. Uh, one is called Stealing Fire, How Silicon Valley, the Navy SEALs and Maverick Scientists are Revolutionizing the Way We Live. It's from 2017. What I really liked about it is it's an exploration sort of a, an important component to high-performing teams, which at, at this point has, has been widely overlooked, which is sort of how do we get teams into a zone and how to create that psychological advantage that's so critical to high-performing teams. We oftentimes talk about technical skills or training, uh, you know, but how do we really dial up the mental and emotional side of this? And as we talk about, you know, athletes trying to get themselves in the zone, there's a whole science and a lot of industry going in, into replicating that and being able to do that on demand. So I thought this was uh, extremely fascinating and, and thought provoking, if nothing else. Uh, and then the second book, which is a fiction book, and maybe it's because I'm a relatively new parent, but was uh, extremely moving to me, is a book called Hamnet, uh, which is focuses on the wife of Shakespeare and his son uh, who, who dies. Uh, and it's a sort of based on his, it's a historical fiction novel, but was really uh, something just a, that, that uh, touched me and moved me. And I thought it was a nice Nice compliment to this, because really, at the end of the day, we are emotional beings, uh, and uh, I think that gets overlooked and when we think about our day to day and how we succeed and how we define success and how we create relationships and how we create high performing teams I mean often we when we get recommendations for books, it is usually self help or business related so it is nice and refreshing to hear just a book outside of the traditional, you know, Ogmandino type of motivational books, uh, just something that moves you. So that's great. Yeah. And I figure you could probably just read some cliff notes or uh, an article on stealing fire and get the gist of it. And then Hamnet is a good experience and written by Maggie O'Farrell. So uh, highly recommend those two. He is the global head of strategic insights and analytics and business intelligence at Real Madrid. Julian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, really appreciate having uh, us. And if you want to work less than 90,000 hours, I'd recommend moving to Spain. It's a little bit less than the U.S.